Welcome to Find the Outside, the podcast. Today, we are so excited to bring to you our friends, Quenita Robertson and Tennyson Wolf. These folks we have known for years. These are like old home kind of friends. Like the very first Art of Hosting I went to, I think Tennyson, not the first one, second one, was the host. And I remember like Tennyson's quotes kind of like still stay in my head and in my ears. And Quanita, I met years ago when we were talking about how do you do this work and have children and have a marriage. By the way, we both ended our marriages. So apparently, I don't know how that all works, but whatever. We met to talk about like, what is it like to be a woman and a mom in this work, Mm. right? These are like good heart friends that we have been colleagues with for years and they do similar work but different enough that we wanted to talk with them today and just hear about what they're up to in the world and how they're making change. Tim? No, I love it. I don't have much else to say other than that we've been orbiting each other for a while, you know, and just when we were checking in before talking, you know, Quanita, I can't remember your exact quote, but like my translation was, this is overdue, (laughs) you know, (laughs) this took too long. Come on now, you know, so just really pleased to be on a call together, you know, and also Tuesday and I consistently get excited when we get to work with other practitioners who are working across race, they're working across gender, they're working across nationality when they're delivering this type and scale and depth of work. So that's been a huge part of our journey. So it's just wonderful to have you both with us. Thanks for joining. Is there anything the two of you would like to say by way of introduction before we start asking you particularly provocative and profound questions? Oh, well, first of all, I just want to say thank you for inviting us. What a treat <laughs> to be here with you. I feel like, you know, like it's Christmas, <laughs> you know, and I'm curious on kind of where it'll unfold and where it'll go. I believe that life has a life of its own and it already has what it wants to be. And our job is just to listen deep enough to figure out what that is. You know, I'm here in Cincinnati, Ohio with my feet on the ground and this is where I live. And it's really kind of a different uh, phase for me. My children are out of my house now. So I'm an empty nester. And so I'm trying to figure out what the heck does that mean? And how does it change who I am? How does it change the way I work in the world? You know, what is possible now? And what still needs to be grieved? Because in every Mm. moment, of course, possibility also includes grief. And so I'm just glad to be here with you two and to be here with Tennyson and excited to see where we go. Tennyson. Yeah, I'll do a couple of words. Uh, hi, I echo the the thank you for the invitation also. And uh, Tuesday, in your words, kind of naming the old home or something about the roots there, that stands mm. out to me. Mm. Because we are people who have known each other in previous times in some very deep and significant and woven ways. And even though there's, you know, a pretty big gap of time here, it's like I still feel the affinity or the heart yeah. connection mm-hmm. that, as I said earlier, before we started, it, it, it brings some joy out in me to reconnect in a path of sort of being friends and being curious, practi- curious people and curious practitioners with one another. So all of that comes alive for me. I really feel joy to be in all of that. And uh, in terms of some of the the basic intro, that might be the most important thing I say, actually, is around living with a certain layer of curiosity and, you know, trying to trying to do well within self and with other human beings. I am actually in Ohio right now in Quinita at Quinita's place, 
because we're up to some work here the last couple of days and coming up in the next week here also. But I live in Utah, and uh, that's where I've lived for many years as a dad and as a practitioner and as a community person and all the layers of human that I am. And uh, I also come from Canada, so there's a mm. shared Canadian thing. I grew up in Alberta, and uh, so I carry some of that um, some of that energy in me also. Uh, but it's good to join you. I feel like we contribute to a field of practice, trying to do some good with human beings. And though there's many ways to say that, uh, that that's probably a good enough way to start here. I'm glad for it. Love it. Love it. Ah, oh, so good. It's nice. I've got two, two immediate things strike me. One is that uh, years ago, I read some research that apparently the empty nesting period is statistically one of the happiest periods in people's lives. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I don't, I'm not saying statistics apply to everybody, you know, I'm just saying that was a really interesting thing to hear, you know. And then the other thing, Tan, is like, you know, I think it is a good time to be Canadian. Like soccer is really becoming a national sport here. <laughs> and, and, so, and, so, and so as a result, you know, being Canadian is suddenly like, it's you know, I feel like I'm ready to, you know, surrender a lot of my Englishness because of that transition in the Canadian ah, national identity. There you go. Yeah, it's, a, it's a, you know, it's an, ex, it's an exciting time. I, I'd love to start with how the two of you met each other. Like, how did you end up in each other's circle delivering work together? Like, where did your worlds collide, meet, arrive? Like, you know, yeah. I'll start. <laughs> I'll jump in. Um, my first thought that came to mind is my mother used to always say, if you take the credit, you have to take the blame, too. Mm. So <laughs> I would give credit and blame to Christina Baldwin. <laughs> I was um, speaking with her uh, about doing some work with me here in Ohio. And she says, well, let me tell you what you need to do. You need to come and attend something that I'm doing, and then we'll do something together. And so she was hosting Self as the Source of the Story, um, her writer's retreat, which actually she's doing the last one this December. Wow. And so I said, yes, I'm going. And that's where Tennyson and I met. We met at this writing retreat. And um, just it stuck. I always say, you know, some people in your life, you meet them and they kind of stick. And we just started doing these phone calls. So it didn't start as work. It just started in about a year and a half of, you know, phone calls every, I don't know, four to six weeks or something where in between our traveling or whatever, we would get on, I think it was Skype then. <laughs> and, and we would uh, have these calls and wander around places. They didn't have an agenda. It was just, what's up for you? What has your attention now? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of like a very involved and longer arc and yet just find the simple things in it. Cause it's often like the simple beginnings that are the, right. you know, the most compelling part right. to me. So you've named some of that Quinita. We did meet at this writing workshop. Boy, that was a treat to go to. That's the mm. first time I went to a writing workshop, and uh, it was good to be in the hands of Christina Baldwin there. And what I relate to is in those phone calls, Quinita, that you and I had, that there was just a certain aliveness that was there. Like it was nothing planned. There wasn't a, an agenda. There wasn't, it, it was just like, oh, this feels interesting. Yeah, sure. Let's have a call. Like what an easy thing to do, right? So to have a call, but I think what grew really quickly in that is, for me, how I would language that is a, a very alive learning space. 
So I felt like we would talk and the things that would happen would have me reaching for a pen pretty quickly in the way that I'm a learner. And it's like, ooh, 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 I want to catch that. Ooh, that's a good phrase. Ooh, that's a, you know, that's a good idea. So there was a very active and alive learning space that really uh, grew between us or among us that way. And how sweet to be able to follow that with uh, a slow enough pace with one another that eventually leads to, so I think this goes back to your question, Tim, it leads back to like, all right, so you want to try some stuff together? These are interesting conversations. And we are talking about people and we're talking about what we do and what interests us. So, you know, would it be crazy if we maybe tried to do a little thing? So, you know, I think a friendship forms or a sparky learning relationship with one another or learning environment. And then it's pretty natural for that to grow into, you know, you want to try something? What if we tried something? And I I love that kind of uh, simplicity and you know, beginning. That, that's some of that. And that's grown us into a whole pile of work, which I think we'll probably talk about a little bit here. Well, and actually, I do actually just to kind of like start us off, I'd love for people to hear a little bit about what is the work you're doing, because I think then some of our questions will be grounded. And so I'd love to hear, I mean, I'd, I mean, maybe even a bit of an arc, right? Like you said, they were like, oh, that could be interesting to do together. I'm wondering like, what what was the work you started from this learning field? And then, and where has it taken you? What is the work you're in now together? Just to give people a sense of your work before we kind of dive into some of what's behind it. Yeah, sure. So maybe I'll start with that one then, Quinita. Because the first things that we did, ha, this is funny to think back because in that little like sparky alive thing, I think what we led to in a thinking out loud way is, you know, like this is an interesting conversation. What if we invited some people that we know to join this conversation hey, you know, what if we spent like a little informal Friday through Sunday together? And then we started playing around and we said, well, what would we call these things? Because I'm a person who likes to sort of see it and shape it a little bit, then it comes alive in another way. You know, what would we call such a gathering? And we were playing with our names. There's Quinita with a Q and Tennyson with a T. And we said, what if we just called it a QT retreat? And it was playful enough and it was like, okay, sure, that's as good as anything. So we actually did 10 of these over the course of, I think, five years it was, where we invited people basically to come into a kind of inquiry with one another. Let's, let's spend a weekend being curious with one another. I remember that, Quinita, as some of the original description that we would use. So we started with those kind of things. And um, these, these are not crisp lines of one thing ends and another thing begins. But then we moved into some client work with one another. And, and that was in the form that you two know, Tim and Tuesday. It's like we would, you know, I'm doing a thing and I'd say, you know, what makes this better is I'd like to invite my colleague Quinita to join us. And we'd set that up or vice versa. That's some of how that started, I think, Quinita with, um, with you and I. But it meant that we started working with some systems of people being able to bring uh, some of our shared background or some of our unique backgrounds and our shared backgrounds. I too come from this art of hosting background. I come from a circle lineage. I come from a Meg Wheatley lineage. Also, Quinata, you come from your background that you can speak to. But we just thought, oh, let's bring this into some of the client systems we're working with. And let's continue to develop and grow our own programming also. So we created a rites of passage and leadership program called Fire and Water. 
And that's a 16-month journey with multiple retreat, in-person retreats and things like that. So I like to think of what we offer as, or what it's grown into, as a kind of whole ecosystem. There are some things that are sort of easy to come into, you know, hey, it's an online class. We'll meet four times. There you go. We get a taste of each other. And uh, some of it is deep dive stuff like the fire and water program or what I'd like to think we're doing with our client systems also to sort of get them into the, the meaningful stuff together. Now, that's some version. What would you say? First of all, I would say, you know, you talked about the QT retreats. One of the things that I think was special with those is they were in our homes. Wow. And so we, so when we first talked about with Dennis and first said, well, what if we did something? It was, uh, okay, we want it to be inexpensive. We want to only invite the cool kids, <laughs> the friends we want to have come. And we, uh, and we want to invite them to a weekend of deliberately wandering with friends, mm. you know? And so our calls were rooted in the, what has your attention kind of space. And so the QT retreats were rooted in that that we really believed that whatever has your attention, attention has heart and meaning. And so one of the things that I love about that is that, well, love and again, has both sides of the coins, right? Is because it was about what has your attention. We did two a year. Every invitation was redone. Mm. So it was like, what's current now? What has our attention now? We even redid our introduction of our of each other. We introduced each other in the invitation. So we even like had our introduction redone each time. And what I love is, you know, the QT, what QT stood for changed every time we said it, ah. depending on who you asked. If you asked Tennyson or if you asked me, you know, it was a different thing. One of the things I loved is I didn't know this when we did it, but my dad's a cardiologist. And QT intervals is the space between heartbeats. Mm. And so I just love that that was infused in the work too, you know, because I always say I stayed in the family business. I just do the evolution of it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, and so then from the QT, what I think we were learning or what I was learning, I'll speak to, um, I had just come from doing 10 feminine wisdom retreats in eight years. And what I was noticing is there was this rise of the feminine on the planet, but it was showing up in such a masculine way. And I felt like there was this need to experience healthy masculine and feminine together. So that was one of the reasons that I said yes to the work with Tennyson. I'll also say in my lineage, you know, so much of what my growing up in the work has included is my own culture of growing and how my family has lived in circle in so many ways. Um, as I'm learning more and more as I go have grown up in Montessori schools or in my grandfather's church or in our family of you get in circle and say prayer, right? Like um, those places working for public allies. So I've been raised in circle before I was introduced to the circle way which is another way of a methodology for holding circle. So that's part of my lineage. But also another part of my lineage is the work with um, Melodoma Somme and Sabangfu Somme and um, through Jojo Pamaria and also Brooke Medicine Eagle. And so I have this indigenous line and training in me that I integrate with what I'm doing. And that's um, that word integrate. My training, my uh, educational training includes integral theory. So it's how do you look at things in a more holistic way? And so it's this layering of all these things, which I bring into our work together. When we, Tennyson talked about the fire and water, the 16 month leadership rites of passage program. One of the things that we also do is we have a 
a podcast and we are also doing, we're in the middle right now. We just started yesterday, a new wisdom series, which is a four week kind of deep dive into relationship with this one is uh, with initiation. We've done them around forgiveness and other things as well, but so much of my work, I choose with the feeling of it. And so when Tennyson asked, I really didn't have much of an idea of the work Tennyson did, which is so funny to me, but I knew it was a yes. You know, I think it was about two years later where I finally, I Googled him and find out, okay, who is this person? <laughs> but, but, but I think that that speaks some to the way that we work together, that it felt just like a yes. I didn't know exactly where it would take us, but that was the leaning into. Wicked. I've got loads of questions. I, I want to come back to the kind of roots of how you're w- working across difference with each other kind of feeds your work. But there's something I just want to go to first, which is I did a training with Christina Baldwin when I was about 20 something <laughs> at Hazelwood House in the UK. I think you were there 10. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it was life changing for me. Life changing. You know, first time I'd sat in a room with people from 28 different countries who actually thought like me. Really, the first time I realized I wasn't crazy, I was actually part of something far bigger. But then what I did was I went back to the Netherlands where I had my company, you know, and I'd learned this really intense circle process with like flowers and talking pieces and bells and a whole bunch of ritual around it. And I went back and I invited all of my various friends from all their different walks of life to come and do circle with me, right? And uh, so they all came and they like suffered through this like super intense circle process, you know, and then like about a week later, they did an intervention because they thought I joined a cult, you know, and I'm just super, you know, and, and, and cause like, I just went to go see one of my mentors, Tolka up in Denmark and my daughter started giving me a hard time because I started adopting his cadence, like the way he speaks, this kind of pausing. I almost got like a Danish lilt to my voice, you know? And it's just because I'd worked with him so often. And and as a young man, I associated that accent, that way of speaking with depth, with slowness, with a capacity to intercede in a situation in a way that created change, you know? And, And so you just kind of adopt to those things. So I'm just kind of like interested how you work with integrating the kind of depth that often comes with these experiences and the lineages we're inheriting them, inheriting, and then translating that into the circumstances you're in and the people you're working with. I mean, you're both speaking to very deep lineages, right? And at the same time, how does that like translate into your client work? How does that translate into the first time you meet somebody? How does that translate into a room full of engineers as much as a room full of young people in an urban environment i'm just interested you know i mean just literally because of those two stories you know yeah yeah well way to load up the question tim that's just got a bit in it i'll play with it a bit though because uh, i get excited yeah you know i get excited about that i think that well one and we share some of that history like yeah, i do. was in that room yes you back were at Hazelwood, and and toka is an important person in my life and remains so agreed and i got to go to denmark earlier this year also in may and sit at that table and be in that backyard and you came back talking like toka too. I came back talking like toka. of course i did right <laughs> wait a minute where did you get that danish accent that's so weird that's right so it happens you know but let's say that it might be a consciousness accent also. Oh, God. <laughs> right? uh-huh. So it's there. 
So, you know, I relate to all of that history and a deep love of those histories and a deep love of those things ceremonial or that don't live inside the regular lanes of how people do or talk or that kind of stuff. But it means for me that I think I've spent a good amount of time trying to learn to build bridges between such depth of work and, hey, here's what works right now today with this group of people. So, you know, we, I think we're all trying to be good translators that move the work in meaningful and lasting ways. And for me, there really is an important inner quality in all of that. And how do we invite people into that? You know, how do, how do we do some of that? So I have an example that is recent from some work that was a translation and, and I offered it. Um, I was working with a university system a month ago. And this is for a, an in-person three-day gathering, senior leadership at the university, me and a couple of colleagues. And um, we started off in the shape of a circle, uh, all of those chairs, uh, what were we, 35 of us or so. And, you know, in those first moments, it's, it's uh, what was that? It was a, a Wednesday morning for us. You start off by saying some of the welcome words and this is what we're going to do and you know, people often want to hear something or maybe need to hear something that satisfies enough of that kind of outcome language, you know, like, oh, here's what you're going to leave with. Here's some of the objectives. So my colleagues and I spoke some of those things, but inside my belly, I was kind of stirring like, okay, but there's more going on than this. And how is it that I might be able to invite these people into just a little bit more without kind of scaring them away or activating the cult, you know, radar warning kind of stuff. Uh, that's a real question, right? So I thought about it. And in the moment, you know, I'm a bit of a trust my belly kind of guy, trust my intuition kind of guy. I, I, I just acknowledged all that we had said. This is me speaking to the room of 35 now from my chair in a circle. And I said, you know, all of these things are important. I know that you have come to be in some connection with one another, some learning with one another. You care about doing good work as a university system. Let's celebrate and applaud that. And then this is the added line that I added to try to create some bridge here. And I said, uh, I, truthfully, I mean, all of these are honest for me. I think that there's some artistry involved here. And I think that there's some poetry involved here. And I think that there's some mystery involved here. And my basic line was to say, I wonder how, I don't want to lose awareness of these three things that are at play in our important work with one another. So in some way, this is me, you know, saying things that I couldn't say 30 years ago, Tim, or 20 years ago when we were meeting. Um, but to be able to carry that voice and mean it from my spine and my belly and just invoke it into the room to maybe chisel at some of the certainties that everybody loves, but then invite some of the, the artistry, poetry, and mystery that I think people love also, but they just need to hear it in a like succinct enough way or an honest enough way. That's my example of saying, oh gosh, how are we going to use all this big stuff and deep stuff and, and just try to find like the, the right bite to put into the room so that I'm not bullshitting with them. And, uh, and that, you know, we're, we're, this is a real, a real steering also, like it's part of my job is to help guide people into 
you know, what might be less familiar, but super important. Hmm, some of that. I think two things came up for me, Tim, when you're speaking. One is in our culture, we hold that white people are supposed to be perfect and that people of color never will be. And so with that holding of people of color never will be, it actually gives me a lot of freedom and leeway to do whatever the hell I want. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm not expected to fit in that mold and be perfect. Mm. And so when I show up as who I am, (laughs) and, you know, even though they have the tables set up with the chairs behind them, and I move the tables out of the way and put them in a circle, they don't balk as much against me around it. (laughs) And, you know, because there's a different expectation that gives me some freedom in that. The other thing is for my own healing and growth, I've learned not to be in places that can't see me. I don't work with people who can't see me. I don't, you know, try to do even good manipulation around that because I'm looking for what's the biggest bang for our buck? Where is it that we can contribute the most? And so it has to be people who are ready Or I don't think it's kind. I don't think it's kind to try to move people to some place that they may say they want to go, but they really aren't ready to go. Mm. And so really listening deep enough to know where those threads and where those places are. I love so much of what you both said. And Tennyson, I I have been in the room with your mastery of bringing in just enough (laughs) of the disruption of the status quo and maintaining credibility, right? Because that feels like some of the tension So I've been, I I would say that you're a master at that kind of, and it always feels thoughtful and introspective and not, you know, not insistent, but just kind of like opens a possibility from your own space of curiosity. And Kwanita, I love, I've actually never thought, I mean, like, I think that you're right. I I have the same sense of like, you know, who knows what people expect of me. So I get to, you know, like I get to just be what I, what I want, but I love the, the liberation that implies, you know, because often we would, we would imagine that in spaces where we are not expected to be good enough or enough that we would become smaller instead of actually that gives me space to grow into. Right. And so I really love that framing. I think that that's really, uh, quite generous and, um, quite self-sovereign right? It's not kind of relying on other folks. Um, And I want to just kind of keep on this thread, right? So, because you brought it up about being a black woman and tennis and being a white man. I have two questions. One is, and and one I think you'll probably expect, but like what are kind of this, it's really easy. Tim and I talk about it all the time. It's great that we're a cross-racial, cross-gender team. It, It, you know, like it models something for people. We have to be in the conversations that we're asking other people to be in. Like there's just so much benefit, right? Of working in a cross-racial, cross-gender team. But I'm wondering if you, the two of you could talk with us about some of those kind of deeper layers of working together across race and across gender. Like what, what are you discovering? And I, I'm actually quite curious because I, I think our audience is pretty sophisticated. I want to know, like, what is what surprises you about working across race and gender? What either surprised you that you're learning about yourself, or you're learning about each other, or you're learning about the dynamic? But I just want to like take us a layer down from obviously it's awesome to work across race, right? Model something, you guys get to work on those issues and then take them out. But like, what is the deeper layer of that, and what is surprising you about that? Well, first thing when you were talking to you, it made me think about something that I say often to Tennyson when we're in rooms. I say that people don't expect him to be as curious and thoughtful and calm as he is and quiet. 
You know, we were with a group once who, a group of people of color who started calling me Mr. Rogers, right? <laughs> like that kind of, you know. Um, but they don't expect, so it surprises them. But it's something that I think is healing for people to witness a white man show up in that way, um, especially for people of color who aren't used to, to experiencing that. And I think for women too, I think there's something about in the feminine that gets, that's a healing in that. And then for me as a black woman, they don't expect me to know as much shit as I do. Mm. And so the two together and the respect that we have for each other in that space, I think is transformative for people because I think we talk a lot in this culture about diversity and about, you know, um, going it together, but it doesn't match what it feels like when you're in a room with people who can do that. You know, there's a, there's a vibration that you know then when you're not in it. Mm-hmm. Around the surprise with the work, I actually don't know if Tennyson and I are very good at tending to race stuff between us. But I think what we're good at is we constantly come back to center. So, I mean, I think, and it's, and it's not that we don't tend to it. I just think it's messy as hell at times. But we both have this commitment to coming back to center, which I think is what some of what we've forgotten about being in long-term relationship as a culture. I think there's very few places where we don't live any place forever anymore. We don't work at a place forever anymore. We don't, you know, have the same friends forever usually. And so we've gotten out of practice about what it means to be in long-term intimate relationship with people. And I think that's one of the things that maybe surprises me or um, has surprised me in it or uh, that I'm noticing now. Um, I also think that we both, one of the things that we both have been aware of is some of the ancestral lineages and wounds that we've come together to tend to. Because it doesn't just happen on the personal layer. You know, we come together to heal on a personal layer and on this ancestral layer, these different things. And so I would add that too. Tuesday, will you say that question again? I just want to hear it, refresh it. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just wondering, Tennyson, I think there are probably a lot of assumptions on what can happen in a cross-racial and cross-gender team. And I wanted just asking you to speak on kind of the deeper layers of working across race and gender. And, and with that, has there been anything that has surprised you that you've learned about yourself or about Juanita or about the dynamic to each other? I'm just trying to kind of like drop the conversation down a level yeah, into this yeah. interracial piece um, that might be deeper than just, oh, it's great to work across race because, you know, we get to model and do all of those yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So yeah, a few things then that go into that. Uh, I think the short answer is yes, there's learning in each of those orientations that you just named. I think that there have been times when I'm a, okay, so I'm a white man and I like to think of myself as a reasonably thoughtful and open, kind white man. There of course has been some unlearning, like some deep unlearning that comes with living in these times, that comes with uh, becoming aware of uh, the view of history that I grew up with, left out a few parts. <laughs> you know, so like, like real obvious things like that, that I was not aware of as a, in a younger phase of my life, right? So one of the things is like, there's a deep level of reality check that is sometimes needed. Quinidia, that I feel like you and I can pick up as friends. Like, I don't feel 
on the whole, like I've got to perform with you, Quinita, to somehow hit all the right spots there. There are times when I know that, you know, when we're working with people or just in general, I need to stop and, and I think our way of saying it is, uh, hey, I, I, I need a little reality check on something with you. And to just call it out raw and out loud with one another. So, you know, sometimes that's about maybe a blind spot here, or sometimes that's about what's the dynamic going on, or sometimes even, uh, Quinita, you were referencing this. I feel like some, sometimes people are doing some stuff and it's shitty. Like it, it feels like it's missing the point. And you in particular, now for me as a white man to call that out is different than you as a black woman to call that out. And it's one thing I've always appreciated in you is like, let's call bullshit bullshit and, or let's get underneath the bullshit to try and get at what really matters here. Something in our, in our deep friendship and honesty or, you know, overall honesty and authenticity with one another, I think has enabled us to get at the four or five layers deeper that you're maybe referencing Tuesday. But that has come, of course, with sometimes like you know, the person, I mean, the time that you're referencing the Mr. Rogers group, you know, the Mr. Rogers moment was, I remember that as a, a group of probably 30 or so people, community organizers, mostly people of color, 25-ish, 24-ish, something like that. And I'm trying to read the group, you know, like what's happening here and what's the energy in the room here and why am I not able to pick up on something here? And that was one of those moments, Quinita, when you said, hey, you need to realize that for many of the people in this room, just gaining trust or growing trust for you with a white man is a huge step. And I needed to, you know, to hear that and go, oh, um, and, you know, then try to be with that in a way that had me letting go of some other things that I was trying to encourage in the room. So that's a starting place too, but there's a lot in there and yep, some deep and potent inner learning there too. Can I add one more thing to it? I think one of the learnings for me is just, you know, in this culture of all the conversations around trauma and the emotional labor and all this kind of stuff, I think we've gotten ourselves really screwed up. Mm-hmm. I think that, first of all, I've been taught the responsibility is always on the one most healed. And so claiming that you have to carry the emotional labor doesn't work because of course it's yours to carry. How, like, if you're the one most healed, then it is your work to help. You can't help somebody. They can't find something that they don't know. You can't take your place someplace you've never gone. And so the people who know the way are the ones that need to show the way. The other thing I think is that we don't in this country acknowledge how much patriarchy has wounded white men and that in a lot of ways, they're the most wounded by it. Because if you don't even know you're wounded, you can't even begin to heal. You know, and then we take the most wounded and let them lead the way. <laughs> and so there's this piece of how we're all walking and not seeing. We're, we're living in this half-truth of not acknowledging that to enslave another, because our country was built on slavery, you can't enslave another and not be enslaved yourself. And so the slave archetype is the shadow side is being a slave by a person, a thing, or even an idea. But the light side of the slave archetype is being a slave to the divine spirit within. It teaches us self-mastery. It's actually how we find our freedom. And so this piece about having white people ask, like, how are they enslaved and healing that? 
right? I would say, I don't want you to be my ally. I want you to save your own damn self. I want you to know that this is your, that you're enslaved too to this system, maybe even more so. The other thing I'll say is the caring and the emotional labor, just because I feel like it places that's mine to carry, it doesn't mean it's not painful. It doesn't mean that there's times when Tennyson's not seen isn't deeply painful for me, especially because I care about him, you know? And that's part of the cost of the journey too. There's a cost to all of our journeys. It's uh, wonderful. Thank you both. Thank you for that. I just, I mean, I've done a lot of doing, done a lot of work for myself, but also just research around wounded leaders, right? What does it mean for wounded leaders, particularly wounded white leaders to be holding the majority of positions of power and authority and decision-making and certainly many North European and North American contexts, right? And what's fascinating for me is that behavior of wounded leaders is actually rewarded, right, as good leadership, right? And, you know, that ability to hold yourself distant from and be able to make good decisions, right? The, you know, your ability to not be empathetically involved so you can make a better decision, you know? But as a result, you end up making decisions that don't take into account the people who are going to be impacted by them, right? And you can take that to whatever scale you want, but th- that, is a, that is the behavior of a wounded person, someone who has closed down their empathy, right? And yeah, I mean, the podcast listeners have heard me talk about that a fair bit already, so I'm not going to go m- more into it, but I just want to really recognize that and just thank you for saying it. And then uh, I think the other piece that is intriguing for me and I don't know if you're about to go somewhere else choose but I just I just wanted to ask you to speak a little bit into that ancestral layer of healing that you talked about like I wrote the quote down because I think as a white man that's very different you know so if I think about who my ancestors were they were like police commissioners in colonies they were international spies during Indian partition they were uh, code breakers in World War II at Bletchley Park. One of my grandmothers was one of the first women to go to Cambridge University, right? You know, so like, like my class and race has created a whole set of expectations that were on me before I was born about how I was going to turn up in society, right? And so there's like ancestral expectations, you know, and also ancestral healing. And, and, and maybe they're interlocked. I, I don't know, but I'm just really intrigued. It just caught my attention when you talked about the ancestral layer of healing. And I just wanted to invite you both to speak about that, like how that's a deliberate part of your work together or your work with others. Yeah, there, there's a lot in that again. So yeah, we're on audio here, but I'm leaning back in my chair and I'm you know trying to stretch my arms out a little bit because there's some breath that's needed in that kind of question. So I think somewhere behind that kind of learning, Tim, like, here's my people, here's what I've come from, here was the environment, here was the context. I know for me now, uh, living in this 21st century, and I am a white man, I have to find my way, it feels like, this is the best that I can find. I have to find my way into a keen awareness, like these things are real. And there are shames and there are blames and all kinds of things that go with that. But somehow live with the awareness and at the same time, choose to be a person that I want to be in the world today. So 
I know that uh, there are some environments, and I haven't known how to handle these, some of these, right? There are some environments where I feel like, oh, gosh, I feel like I can't really offer anything here, and I do need to keep my voice down, actually. But I don't like to live that way also. Like, I, I like to live from some value-centered, this is who I choose to be. This is the good that I try to offer in the world. So without, you know, wash it, without moving too quickly over the complex context that we live within around integrations, relations, injustices, diversity, equity, inclusion, there is something about like being with all of that and then also lifting up a value of possibility. What is it that we might be able to do from now? Where, what, how is it that we might be able to start without like blowing sunshine and bullshitting? Like I still, I think, Quinita, this is connected a little bit into the healing that is white men's work and the wounds that are there. I still find I need to choose something to move towards. There's more power in that than so much of the be careful energy. I think first I'll say that um, I've been on my healing journey for over 35 years, which means that I don't think it's always easy to be my friend. <laughs> I think that there's a lot of things that I can't not speak or can't not lean into. And some of that is these, this ancestral healing. I have a firm belief that you can't give what you don't have. And so especially doing work around race, gender, it's where are those places in me that still need to be healed? Where are those places in me that want to be healed personally as well as ancestrally? Um, Tennyson and I were in Chicago years ago, and he asked me this question. He says, so what's the deal with you and all the white men in your life? And do you even know? And my answer to him was, yes, I know. I said, first of all, I said, white men are the only ones that are arrogant enough to think they can stand toe to toe with me. And he laughed. He says, well, wait a minute. I said, no, let me explain what I mean by that. In this culture, especially educated white men, we tell them they can go anywhere, do anything, be anything. And so I said, I can hang intellectually with the best of them. And I think sometimes they're attracted because of the magic that comes with me, because what walks with me. And I dive in the deep waters. I swim in the deep waters. And there tends to be a place, though, at some point where they start to drown. And they don't understand because they're told they can go anywhere, be anything, do anything. And so then it has, it becomes about me. Oh, she must be doing something wrong. And I said, I just know that part of what I've promised to do this lifetime is the healing of the ancestor legacy of slavery. And so much of that wound is between black women and white men because they hold the two power bases. White men hold the power of the European culture and black women hold it for the African-American community. And so it's the healing of that wound between the two power bases, which helps to shift. And I can't do that on a global scale if you can't do it on a personal one. And so that's some of the wound that that's being healed. Some of it's very personal. And some of it isn't. Some of it is, is this ancestral lineage, you know, and one of the ways that I, that shows up in, in different ways in me is I love what Robert Bly says in, in Iron John, where he says, anger is personal and rage is archetypal. It's communal. And so, you know, I think anger is unprossed 
unprocessed personal grief and rage is unprocessed communal grief. And so what I think we get to do in the coming together is processing some of that grief because those tears and that water is what transforms things instead of just changes them for the moment. I think so much of the DEI type of work that we're doing in the world right now It changes behavior, but it doesn't heal. And because trauma wants to be healed, it'll always float back to the surface later. So we're not really releasing it. We're just moving it for the moment. And there's something I want to, there's some, I don't even quite know how I want to ask the question, but there's something I feel like you're both poking around, moving around, sometimes saying explicitly around our responsibility to these times. But Quinnity, you said it so beautifully. Like, it's not about am I or am I not doing emotional labor? I mean, that's important. I understand that that's, but it's more like, who do I want to be? How healed am I? What is my responsibility? There's something I'm like, I'm, I'm wanting to like push a little bit further because I am with you. I agree the trauma discourse, this discourse around race and oppression related to trauma and healing is kind of a net positive. And yet somehow it, the word I want to use is it, it infantiles us. Like there's something like it, it makes us, it wants to make us smaller instead of bigger. And Quinita, I just like, I just want you both to like, there's something about the biggerness you're calling into here that I'd love to hear you all talk about. Yes. I think that, you know, I've been known to say we're all swimming in the water of what's right, real and true is white and male. And the problem with that equation is that it often takes the divine and nature out of it. So it makes us think we're solely responsible for our success or failures. You know, it doesn't know how to surrender to something bigger. And we're all living with that then as a yardstick for what's right, real, and true. What success is, even with privileges, I hate the way we use the word privilege these days because it's not privilege to be disconnected from your heart. It's only privilege if you're using that yardstick. And so we use it, and what we're really doing is reinforcing the victim savior archetype every time we do it. Yes. Thinking that we're doing the other thing. But because we haven't done our own healing, the only thing that we can then produce is the wound. It just shows up in these different iterations, right? And so, how do we get that if someone else can free us, it's never freedom because then they can enslave us again. (laughs) And that it's our job to find our own freedom and that it's never conditioned on someone else. And the other thing I think is that we, uh, we get it flipped. We think that our belief systems are formed by our experiences and not the other way around. Not that your belief systems call up your experiences because the universe wants to prove you right. So if my belief system is that the world isn't safe, the world is out to get me, then what I'll do is I will call up all kinds of experiences that'll prove that true. If I decide, no, I wanna start to work with and play with and grab a hold of a new belief system of the world is out to gift me, what'll happen is I'll call up experiences that prove that true. For years now, I've had this belief that I carry that every time I do good work, I get a gift. So <laughs> so like every time I do something really good work, a gift shows up from someplace and somewhere. And it's just that like um, 
that manifestation power that we all have, that the only thing that can show up in front of you is you. So if I don't have a place in me that feels that I'm unworthy, then no one can show up in my presence that treats me in that way. And that's the power that I think we're afraid to know that we have and that we resist knowing because it requires something of us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There are big stories. There are so many layers here and big stories at a big layer. So so Tuesday, I'm going back to where you started with something around bigger and, and I find myself uh, shifting that even to it's, it's, it's like, how do we live conscious lives? How do I live a conscious life? Because that's a pretty big journey in itself. And to dare to welcome others into a conscious life, which sounds kind of snooty, but nonetheless, you know, there's one framing. That's a big deal also to invite others into it. So at one layer for me is such a toka kind of statement. How is it that I might live or we human beings a bit more consciously as human beings on planet earth at this time? Like that's a grounding, centering kind of, you know, deep question to me. And it, it's not I, like I don't get excited over that because it's some grand intellectual question. It just like hits nerves of what I'm interested in about how do we be good humans with one another. I feel like when, when I, I, I somehow I have to learn by pulling it back to self, but knowing that it's more than self. So in one of the ways that I do that, I, in such simplified ways, I feel like, gosh, my job is to feel, like to return to feeling, as opposed to all the blocked out things that you were talking, Tim, you know, the historical, nope, you're not going to get my feelings in the room, or you're not going to get my vulnerability. I, I think part of the job is to return to feeling that I relate to, return to feeling, and to not being afraid. Like even those, you live that for a couple decades in your life, and that's pretty, you know, significant. So there's practices in self and practices with others. But then for me, like I'll get excited about all of that kind of focus and love inviting people into that. Then I'm going to come back to what does this mean when I'm working with a group of people like the university leadership who aren't starting there. That's not their starting question. That's not what's on the invitation. You know, that's not what's in the workbook. So I return to some things like, ooh, I need to know those big values. I want to feel those big values and stand for them. Hey, there might be some artistry, mystery, and poetry involved. But then we kind of translate it into some practice, which introduces to me the potency of things like, well, circle. Well, here's this small group process, a world cafe. Well, here's open space technology and some other ways to self-organize our learning. Like we, we bring methodology in a way so as to create encounter that touches both the deep meaning of things as well as the, you know, strategic, what are we doing next week kind of stuff or next year those sort of loop together for me. But I'm, I'm glad, Quinita, somehow you and I get to touch working with organizations and systems and also working with people in a, an elongated journey, a 16-month kind of thing and more for that matter, right? I think I draw a lot of hope and satisfaction and realness 
out of knowing that we can offer some simple ways for people to start so that they might begin to touch those feelings or a bit more of them. And that seems useful in the world. I just think Tennyson and I, this is a place where we hold it a little differently because doing fire and water in the bigger journeys is actually how I do, how I touch the people in those other places. I don't feel like I need to be in those other places in the just beginning kind of, that's not my work. Tennyson does that. And I just, I feel like my time and energy, uh, my life force energy is better used supporting other people to do that. (laughs) I think there's another piece that in the healing and the, you know, um, trust your intuition and trust your, you know, we tell people this all the time, you know, to lean in and trust your intuition. And I think we've forgotten what happens when there's a wounded instinct, when there is, um, when a trauma has happened and there hasn't been a healthy intuition to move in. So there becomes a wounded instinct, which makes a person pray for predator internal and external. Because then you can't, it's not just, if I think, I think about it as a bow and arrow, say that the arrow is your intuition and the cognition is the bow, the, the instinct. If that's off, you're not going to hit what you say you want, even though you're trusting your intuition. And so how do we start to heal that? You know, um, because I think we do a lot of imitation instead of integration of the work because of that wounded instinct. People think they're going in the right direction because they're trusting their intuition, but it's off. And I think that's why a lot of, um, we know the right words. Like we work with a lot of clergy. We work with therapists. We work with um, these days, some lawyers, some med students, that kind of stuff. But what happens when, in some ways, when we know too much, but not enough, it goes here instead in your head, instead of your heart. And so much of this stuff isn't an intellectual exercise. So it's how do we move people to their hearts more and more? You know, we say, I know tons of people who do yoga all the time and it's still mean, right? So like, how do we start to shift that? Yeah, it's like, um, I think it was Harrison Owen or someone, one of those people said that, you know, all of the methodologies were just training wheels. They're just training wheels. That's all we're doing. Like that yoga isn't the end game, right? World, World Cafe isn't the end game. Circle isn't the end game, you know? Because it become it can become another dogma, right? Well, it does become another dogma all the all the all the time. Yes, all the time. So I just hear you both saying that. I hear you. You know, you're inviting. You know, I like that what you were saying earlier. Choose this kind of like invitation to something bigger. You know, friends, we're coming near the end of our time, and it's been wonderful to dive deep and follow various different pathways, both I think from our own lives, but also in our shared journeys. It's been like this kind of like confluence, this overlapping weave or something that has taken place here. I'm really incredibly grateful for it. One of the things we often do at the end of the pod is ask the folks who are on, if there's something they're walking around in their back pocket with at the moment, a poem, a quote, a saying, something that, you know, is helping them navigate at the moment. And so just an invitation for one or both of you to bring something if you've got it. 
I'll read something. And it's just something that I, I do a lot of grief work with organizations and individuals and families. And I just love this quote. And I'll also make a plug for the movie Whale Rider, which has been working me in all kinds of delicious ways lately. I've probably watched it six times in the past two months (laughs) because it keeps teaching me deeper and deeper. But this is a quote by Hafiz. Don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut you more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human and even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart tonight has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need for God absolutely clear. Mm. Thank you. Mm. It's fantastic. Thank you, Quinita. It's beautiful. Thank you, Quinita. And can you all hear Tennyson? I'm not hearing him. I can't hear you, Tennyson. I, uh, what I was saying is I hate to follow Hafiz, but I will <laughs> because, Tim, you've invited it. And um, uh, so there is poetry, and poetry has actually become very important to me as a form of artistry and expression. And and I've written two books now and had them out wow. there in the world. So wow. this is, um, I'll offer it because one of the things that I love is to connect things that are seemingly disconnected and that put them into the same space where suddenly it invites a, you know, a different awareness or a different knowing. The collection of poems is called Most Mornings, which came out in June. And this is one that's called Splitting Wood. And so it speaks to this notion of we think it's one thing, but really there's something else going on. I love that in our work. And I love living that way. So there's six stanzas that go with this. And it's from a real story for me, a real experience for me. Splitting Wood. They split the wood, these five men working together. One man with long gray beard and kind eyes operated the wood splitter. Two men lifted large tree stumps to place just so under the chop of the modern axe. And two men collected the split wood in wheelbarrow to transport and stack neatly in covered shed. This was not hard work these five men splitting wood to warm many a winter morning. This was good work, these five men helping each other, stacking friendship, warmth, and memory. I'll offer that one. Wow. Thank you, Tennyson. Thank you. And can we just hear it again? It's called Most Mornings? Most Mornings, yeah. And how can people get it? Amazon. Okay. Great. And if people want to find out more about your work or the Fire and Water program or anything like that uh, related to you and your work, your writings, uh, the podcast you mentioned, where would people go to find that? Well, we have a combined website that we just released not long ago. Um, and I know. And it's um, www.qtwisdom.com. Mm. Love it. Nice. Hey, so one more little comment here. I know you're wrapping up here, but just as a a little tie back to you two, Tim and Tuesday, it's been clear for me that uh, often it is the quality of listening that listens a story or listens an experience into being. And uh, when that quality of listening isn't there, then it's hard to share stories and all of those kind of things. I just want to say I feel that in you two and the way that you're bringing out some stories here and uh, in the other other places that you're being. So there's a little little high five for me to, and a, a deep bow really, of the appreciation or an appreciation of that kind of listening that you're bringing. Uh, boy, I think we can do good things with that. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate it. Well, it's been a total delight having you both with us. 
thank you for sharing some of your time and your insight and your hearts on this pod and your poetry. Mm-hmm. Thank you.